Well, every first Sunday we've been going through the Psalms in order, and we are up to Psalm number 50. So we are one-third of the way through the entire book of Psalms. Kind of hard to believe. doesn't feel like I've been doing this that long, but uh, we're at Psalm 50, so if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of the scriptures this morning. Psalm 50. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. A psalm of Asaph, the mighty one God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and keep, you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask him to teach us his word and bless it to us by the work of his spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word once again. We thank you that you have not left us to grope around in the dark to try to figure out who you are, uh, to figure out the way of salvation through faith in your Son, and the way you would have us to live. We ask that you would work in us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear once again. Great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, well, this, this psalm, Psalm 50, is a, a somewhat, in some ways, it's a somewhat unusual psalm. It's not a very psalm-sounding uh, psalm, by my estimation. It's a psalm of judgment. It's a psalm of judgment. You know, most, most of the psalms that you read and sing and maybe pray, uh, they are written uh, to and addressed to uh, God. They're songs of praise to God, and so they're addressed to him uh, by the psalmist. They're addressed to God also by us as we worship, as we use them in song and in prayer and as we read them. But this one's different. 
This one, kind of like the one we, we looked at last month, Psalm 49, the previous psalm, are not addressed to God. They're addressed rather from God to us, to the reader, to the worshiper. The great Bible commentator Matthew Henry wrote of this psalm. He said, this psalm as the former, Psalm 49, this psalm as the former is one of instruction, not of prayer and praise. It is a psalm of reproof and admonition, in singing which we are to teach and admonish one another. You remember last time in Psalm 49, uh, Psalm 49 to me felt like you plucked it right out of the book of Proverbs. Well, this one feels like it's plucked right out of the book one of the books of the Old Testament prophets. It's God calling his people uh, to, to judgment. Psalm 49, if you remember last, last month, Psalm 49 spoke of the certainty of death, especially the death of the wicked who were prospering in this life and yet treating God's people in a, in a wicked manner. And, and so it's fitting in some ways that after a psalm dealing with the certainty of death, that God gives us a psalm here in the next psalm that deals with the certainty of God's just judgment. Because the, the Lord here speaks through his psalmist of the judgment, in, but not just the judgment in the way you might think of it. Uh, for when we think of the judgment, we're often tempted to, the first thing we probably think of is the judgment of the wicked outside. Those who reject God, who reject his word, who reject Christ altogether, who never darken the door of a church, who never read his word or any such Thing, but Psalm 50, oddly enough, uh, at least to us in some ways, is actually a psalm of judgment of God's people. It's not about the wicked out there. If I can be, if you can forgive me for saying it, it's about the wicked in here. It's about it's about our shortcomings and things in here. I think you could sum up, if I could use a New Testament passage, you could sum up the message of Psalm 50 pretty well by reading 1 Peter 4:17. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's Psalm 50 in a nutshell. I, don't know, I, don't, I won't suppose that Peter was reading Psalm 50 when he wrote that, but he, it's practically a commentary and a summary of this entire psalm. This psalm can be outlined, I think, in a pretty easy manner, a simple way. The first thing we're going to see is God's call or summons to judgment in the first six verses, the call to judgment. The second thing we're going to see in verses 7 to 21, the bulk of the psalm is the charges against the accused. This is a courtroom setting. God calls the court to order, calls the defendants forward, gives the charges. That's the second thing. The third thing we're going to see, the last thing, is the call to repentance in verses 22 to 20. Three. So let's look at the first thing in verses 1 through 6. That's God's call or his summons to judgment, order in the court. First he calls his witnesses. I know that's not the way we do it in our courtrooms today, but it's what God does here in verses 1 through 4. God calls his witnesses. He says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth. Why? That he may judge his people. So he calls the heavens and the earth as his witnesses. He basically calls the universe, all of creation, to, be, to bear witness, to be his witnesses testifying and seeing and attesting to his just Judgment. That first verse there, you might notice that God kind of multiplies his names, the psalmist does. 
Uh, it's like he, he, he runs, he, he can't think of enough names for God to, to refer to him as. That very first phrase in verse 1 where it says the mighty one, God the Lord, that could be translated uh, simply the God of gods, the Lord. Now there are no other gods but God, but the scripture often uses that kind of a phrase as a way of showing us, you know, there's these false gods and then there's God. Like Jesus Christ is what? The king of kings? He's the ultimate king. He's the one who has authority over all things. And the Lord of lords, well, God is the God of gods. His greatness, God's greatness and all of his glory, all of his power, all of his dominion is what's being set forth before us in Psalm 50. We are to see who it is that we're having to do with, who God is, who the judge is. The one who calls his people forth for judgment is how, how great and powerful is God? Well, the psalmist tells us in some ways God is so great, God is so powerful, his dominion is so, un, it's so limitless that he can call the heavens and the earth as his witnesses. That's how great a, a king, a great a God he is. And God not only speaks and summons, verse 1, he shines forth. Verse 2, he's not hiding himself. He's not hidden. The Lord has said, verse 3, to not keep silence. That's a, a phrase we're going to see later on in the psalm as well. God it's the old, uh, the old book title by Francis Schaeffer. He is there and he is not silent. Talking about, about God. God does not keep silence. What does it mean that God will not keep silence? It, it might mean in some ways that it seems like he is keeping silence for a time. But what is it when it says he will, will not keep silence? He will not stay silent. The psalmist is saying there is a judgment coming. God will judge. He may seem silent right now, but he will not always stay silent. That way he will judge. This morning we confess the Apostles' Creed together, as you recall. And what's one of the things that we confess together towards the end of that creed was that, quote, that Christ will, quote, will come to judge the living and the dead. Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will come from heaven where he is seated at God's right hand to judge. You could say that one of the, belief, one of the marks of a Christian, according to the Apostles' Creed, is that a Christian is one who believes and confesses the truth of the sure future judgment of God. A belief in the future judgment of God, of all mankind, of the, of the living and the dead, is one of the marks of a Christian. Paul reminded the Thessalonian Christians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, he reminds them of their conversion. And this is what he says, that they were people who, quote, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Even in kind of the opening greeting of the letter, when he reminds them of their conversion, that he brings those things up. They didn't just turn from idols to serve the one living and true God, but they also turned to God to wait for his son from heaven, who delivers us. The, think about that. The judge himself is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come, from his own wrath. And he did that by his death and resurrection. The psalmist says there in verse 4 that before him, before God, is a devouring fire and around him a mighty tempest. You, know, you think of the, the, the last week's news with the storm down in Houston. And you think of a tempest and the might. I couldn't help but think... Uh, when you see the devastation caused by it, you think, you think to pray, you think of praying for God's mercy rightly upon all those folks. You pray that 
people's lives wouldn't be lost, that God would provide for them, comfort them at their losses. But one of the things that I believe those storms and things do is they, they pull us up short. They grab us by the short hairs and say, God is so powerful, that's, that's like a drop in the bucket compared to God's awesome power. That's the God with whom everyone has to deal, a God who can fling a storm like that as if it were nothing. It says there in our, in our psalm, again, before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest, a storm. And that calls to mind, I think maybe it does for you too, things like the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses saw a bush that was on fire but not being consumed. Exodus 24, after the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, it says, Exodus 24:17, the appearance of the glory of the Lord on that mountain was, was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of God. When they looked at the mountain where, where God was given, God, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, it looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain, like the whole mountain might be getting burned up. And that's because the presence of God, that was a manifestation of the presence of God. Now, God, God does not change, does he? There are people that foolishly think God changes. God, God is perfect in all of his ways, in all of his being. He admits no need to change. Any change in God would render him less than perfect. He says he does not change. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach us this. And both the Old Testament and New Testament teach and affirm that God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24, it says, The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 echoes the very same language and says this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. We are too. Offer up to God acceptable worship. Acceptable to whom? To God. And why are we to do that? And how? How? With reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. That same God that the Israelites saw the fire on top of the mountain and, were, and their knees were knocking is the same God you and I worship now. He has not changed in the slightest. How much of the worship in our churches is done today with reverence and awe? How much of the worship in our churches is done with, with God in mind as being a consuming fire, as being a holy God? Have we forgotten that God is a consuming fire? Do we think somehow that God has changed, that we can change the way we do things now to suit our own thoughts and, and desires? Notice again in the psalm just who it is that the Lord is summoning into judgment as the defendants. Who are the defendants in this psalm? Look at verses 4 to 6 again. It says, He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge what or whom? His people. That should get our attention. That he may judge, verse 4, his people. And he says, puts the words of God here, Gather to me my faithful ones or my pious ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judged. Now that little word Selah there, commentators are always kind of scratching their heads and offering explanations of what that might mean. Very often they say, and I think they're probably right, Selah is like putting the word pause in, in, in the text. And it, it's basically saying, stop and think about what I just said. 
Consider what you just read or prayed or sang if you sang this song. Think about it. It's saying all these things is something that should, it should get our attention. We should not rush our way through the psalm, but we should think about it. Who is it that the Lord is judging here? He's not judging at this time in the psalm. He's not judging those who are on the outside. It doesn't mean he won't. Psalm 49 tells us that, but he's judging those inside. Not outside of Israel and the church, but inside. He's judging his people, his, quote, faithful ones who made a covenant with him by sacrifice. Verse 5, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, says of this psalm, he says, the address which follows, the verses that are after this, the address which follows is directed to the professed people of God. It is clearly in the first place, originally, meant for Israel but it is equally applicable to the visible church of God in every age. It declares the futility of external worship when spiritual faith is absent and the mere ceremonial is rested in. He's saying this isn't just for Israel. Israel, you could say, was the manifestation of the visible church in the Old Testament. Well, we are the manifestation of the visible church in the New Testament age. God doesn't have two peoples. He has one. He has different ways of administering his covenant in the old and the new. We don't have animal sacrifices. We don't have an altar. We have a table, as we always say. But God has one people, one covenant people, one visible church. And so this psalm isn't just some old dusty thing that applied to them back then that we can look at safely under glass and say, oh, that's interesting. No, this is God. God addresses you and I in this psalm. He addresses us. Spurgeon is surely... Correct. We, you and I can't carelessly presume that because the psalmist speaks of things that we are not familiar with, like sacrifices, burnt offerings, bullocks or bulls and goats, that somehow this psalm must not apply to us. That's got nothing to do with us because we don't do those kinds of things. Now, God has not changed, and in, in some ways, neither have we. we are, you and I are not that much different, if at all, from the Israelites when it comes to our hearts. We're not, you know, following a cloud and a pillar of fire and things like that. But our hearts aren't really much different than theirs. What does Jeremiah 17.9 say about your heart and about my heart? That, that our hearts are, quote, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That wasn't a used to be thing. That's a now thing. That's, that's, an us, that's about us. It describes your heart and mine. Even on our best days, even on our most sanctified state in this life, your heart is still deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We are still tempted in the same way that the Israelites were. Maybe not by the same exact specific things, but the same ways. And so this psalm is a psalm of warning to us and a call to repentance to us as well. What are the charges? What are the charges that God brings to his people? That's an important thing to consider. He brings two, two different uh, charges that God brings. The judge of all the earth brings against his covenant people. And really what he does here is he addresses the visible church in, in Israel back then, but in our case, the visible church as we are. And he addresses two different groups within the visible church. Two different kinds of sins regarding worship in the visible church. And the first one is the sin of formalism or ritualism. Formalism or ritualism. This is the idea of going through the motions in worship. In their day, it, was, it involved blood sacrifice, the killing of animals and offering them up on the altar. They went through the motions in that. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. 
I am God, your God. He's not casting them off. He's not saying, you think I'm your God, but I'm not. He's saying, I'm your God. I'm the one who's testifying against you. And he says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. He's not, this is what he's not saying. He's not saying, you've stopped doing what you were supposed to do. You've neglected worship. We do that. Maybe they hadn't. They hadn't stopped offering their offerings, their sacrifices. God says they were continually before him. But he says he wasn't going to accept them. I don't have time to read every possible cross-reference to this kind of a thing, but read sometime Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 is, is a troubling passage where God the Lord tells Israel, uh, you know, when you, when you raise your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. You're, you're, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. He's like, your, your feasts, your new moons, your Sabbaths, your holy days, these are a burden to me. And he says, I cannot bear solemn assembly and iniquity. There, there, sometimes God will not accept worship. You ever think about that? And he's going to tell us exactly why and, 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 and what the reasons are for that. So they had, they had not neglected attending worship, as we sometimes do. They hadn't neglected offering their sacrifices. Far from it. They were giving all the sacrifices they were supposed to give, maybe even more. They were continually before him, but they were treating God, the one true and living God, as if he were an idol. That's, his, that's really the substance of what his accusation is against his people. What, what do I mean by that? How are they treating God as an idol? They were, they were acting as if God could be put in their debt. As if I did this, you owe me that. I did your offerings, your sacrifices. Now you have to bless me. Now you have to deliver us because we did what we were supposed to do. They thought that God could be placed in their debt. They presumed that they could obligate God to bless them by their sacrifices, just by doing them. People do that even today in many ways. And so the Lord, what does he do? He reminds them, you have the wrong idea about me. There's some things you have to remember about me is kind of what God is saying. And the first thing is he reminds them that God, he reminds them he owns everything. Those bulls, those goats, those bullocks, those sacrifices, all those animals that they were giving, whose were they? They were his. He says in verse 10 to 11, for every beast of the forest is whose? Is mine. And ca the cattle on a thousand hills belong to whom? The Lord, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. You're not, you can't give me anything, is what he's saying. It, that's all mine. And then he says to them, reminds them that he not only owns everything, but he needs nothing. God needs nothing. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need animals. He doesn't need the church. He doesn't need he stands in need of nothing. He's perfectly sufficient in and of himself. Look at verses 12 to 13. If I were hungry, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Right? For the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In other words, he's saying, what exactly do you think is happening here when we have these sacrifices? When the lambs and bulls and goats and birds and all these things that are being killed and offered as burnt sacrifices and other, all those different kinds of sacrifices. He's like, do you think I'm like the idols of the world? Do you think that you're actually giving me something that I need? 
that this is a quid pro quo, that, that you give me the sacrifice and I give you something that I'm hungry somehow, that I have some kind of need that you little pipsqueaks can give. No, right? He's, I, I'm God. I don't need anything. And all the things you have are given by me. And, and don't get me wrong. He's not saying, you know, those sacrifices you're giving you shouldn't be doing. Who instituted those sacrifices? God did. We assume that they were giving the ones that, the, the way they were supposed to do it, as far as the outward ceremony was concerned. Um, but they weren't thinking of them rightly. They were thinking of God himself in a pagan way in some ways. And so what does the Lord say there at the end in verses 14 to 15, the, the end of the first section of, of accusation? He says to them, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. He doesn't say stop offering the sacrifices in their day. Of course, they were, going to be, they were going to be obsolete when Christ came and died. But in their day, he doesn't say stop offering them. But he says, here's, here's how you offer them. Offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is much more important than the outward going through the motions of even those sacrifices. Perform your vows to the Most High. Do, you know, do from the heart what you're supposed to do. And then call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This brings to mind what Hebrews thirteen fifteen to 16 says. It says, through him, through Christ, uh, then let us, that's us today, let us offer, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips to acknowledge his name, uh, that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We still have sacrifices to offer. They don't involve animals. They don't involve anything like that, but a sacrifice of praise. We offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. We offer up to God doing good to others. And it says, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What is the psalmist saying? You know, there, there's a, a, a saying in reform circles that I, it's very helpful. I believe we, it's the three G's. Maybe you've never heard it. Maybe you have. But it's kind of a, 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 a shorthand for the gospel for the way the gospel works, the Christian life works, and that is guilt, grace, and gratitude. You're, we are guilty on our own before a holy God. Grace, we are saved by grace, and because of that grace and salvation in Christ by that grace, we show gratitude for God in all that we do, how we live, how we worship, how we praise, how we handle our belongings, all that is, is, is an act of gratitude. Well, obeying God's commandments is an act should be an act of gratitude, should be motivated by gratitude. Gratitude, giving thanks to God, must be at the heart of our worship. Gratitude must be at the heart of our obedience to God's law. Gratitude should be at the heart of our giving. Gratitude should be at the heart of all the service that we do, whatever that may be, in Christ's name. Now, our offerings that we, we give every, every Sunday, they don't obligate God to do anything. And again, just like those bulls and goats we're not giving God something. We're giving back to him part of what's already his, that he's entrusted to us as a stewardship. Giving thanks, if you think about it, is a gospel grace. Giving thanks is a gospel grace. By it, we approach God not as one to be manipulated into blessing us by our gifts to him, as if somehow we could imagine that we add to God's blessedness in any way, shape, or form by what we give to him. 
but rather as one who by his mercy in Christ has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, even eternal life. When you realize who's giving what to whom, gratitude is only the, the most common sense thing to express. It's a gratitude God reminds us. In, in your worship, we're not giving to God. We're thanking him for what he's given to us. Those sacrifices... Remember the story of Abraham in Genesis 22 when he took his son up on the mountain and God told him, take your son, your only son whom you love. You know, Isaac kind of twists the knife in almost in his heart, like pouring it on all these things about Isaac. You know, he could have gone on. The son you waited 25 years for, the son and all my promises is wrapped up in. Take him up there and sacrifice him. And, and remember, remember Abraham tells the servants, me and the boy, we're going to go up and worship and we'll be back. And even his son said, hey, dad, where's the, where's the, where's the lamb? You know, where's the, where's the goat? And his dad ties him up, puts him on the altar, and raises the knife. The angel stops him. I'm paraphrasing. But what did he say? He said, the Lord will provide a ram. The, the Lord will provide his own sacrifice, basically. And what happened? Angel stopped him. Ram caught in a thicket by the horns. Who provides the sacrifice? In every single instance, God did. Old Testament sacrificial system, the lambs, the goats, the bulls, all that, the birds. Who provided that? God provided for all of that. And he provided that to point forward to Christ's death on the cross. He provided his son. He gave his only begotten son as a sacrifice. So our worship should be, of all things, our worship and everything else should be, the hallmark of those things should be gospel gratitude. Well, what's the second charge or the second group of people that God calls to, uh, to judgment here in Psalm 50 is the charge is hypocrisy he's calling out hypocrites uh, among his people they warn, he warns them of judgment he calls them forward to judgment warns them to repent now these aren't the wicked who are out there God, God will get to them surely but right now he's dealing with the visible church these aren't the wicked who are irreligious who have nothing to do with God these are those who profess to follow the true religion, but deny it by the way they live. Everybody has, has known uh, folks that, that fit that description. I trust and hope that, that that describes no one here this morning. But what does it say? You know, God addresses them. What does God call them? The first group he actually calls my people, right? This one, what does he say? There in, in verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, that should get people's attention. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For why? For you hate discipline. They hate instruction. They hate being corrected. And you cast my words behind you. Or it's, he's saying, you know, I've spoken to you and spoken to you and spoken to you. And what have you done with my words? Chuck them over your shoulder like, you know, like bad salt or something. They don't, they don't want to hear it. They don't want God's discipline. And he calls them wicked. Now, the word wicked is a term normally in Scripture reserved for those outside, those who are unrepentant and still in rebellion against God. And God, there could be no more harsh or hard-to-hear term that he could use for people within the, the covenant community than to call them wicked. He's saying, you're in here and you act like you're out there. You're worshiping me, but you act like you're worshiping some false god, some pagan, heathen, uh, false god. And when he talks about casting his words behind them, this is much the same sin as that of King Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. Remember the first king 
of, of Israel. Saul had rejected the word of the Lord, and so God rejected him as king. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul was a hypocrite. The scripture paints him as a hypocrite, a false professor of the true faith. And think about this. When you read the story of King Saul, it should kind of really make us stand in awe. I mean, he was the king. He wasn't just some random Israelite who was, who was hardened in heart and playing the part. He was the king of the whole nation. And yet he was a hypocrite who actually rejected God and so whom God rejected as king. What was Saul's sin? Unbelief, hypocrisy. Saul believed somehow he thought that he could live and do as ever he, however he pleased and yet still be right with God as long as he offered sacrifice. How many in the church today fit that description? We think we can live however we want, no matter what. And as long as we check that box, go to church, put money in the plate, fill in the blank, everything's cool. Everything's all right. That's what Saul thought, didn't he? And that's what some people, according to Psalm 50, were thinking at the time. Listen to 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23, when the word of the Lord came to him by the prophet Samuel to, to, to Saul. It says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption. That, that, that's what Saul did. He presumed presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Remember the story. So, you know, God tells you know, through Samuel, Saul, I've got a job for you. Uh, the, the Amalekites and King Agag, I want you to go and, and perform my vengeance upon them for their wickedness they did upon my people hundreds of years ago when they were coming out of Egypt. The, 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 the time has come to pay the check. You know, God, God's judgment may be slow, maybe hundreds of years in waiting, but it was going to come. God, like he said in the psalm, he may be silent, but not forever. And so what did King Saul do? Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but he didn't do what God said. He went... Good job there. He fought. Good job there. But the people spared the best of the sheep and all the animals. He, he spared King Agag. Right? What's he doing? He, he's doing what he wants to do. That's what other kings did. They took spoil. They, they made themselves look good by, look, here's the king I conquered. You know, it's, remember when, when uh, Saddam Hussein was captured? It was all over the papers. You know, there's a, there's a pride aspect. Look, we got him, I think was the headline. And we were, we were rightly proud of that. You deposed someone who was a wicked man. But Saul wasn't told to do that. Saul was told, go in and kill everything. It was, it was holy war. It was, the, the Hebrew word is karam. Go in and wipe everything out, and you don't take a speck of anything. This isn't that kind of a battle. You don't get to take spoil here. Well, Samuel shows up, and he says, you know, Saul, Saul's like, hey, Samuel, great to see you. You know, we're going to have a worship service. And... And, and Samuel says, what's this bleeding of sheep I'm hearing? Because he said, I've done everything the Lord said. And Samuel's like, uh, I'm hearing a lot of animals here. What's going on? And so what does Saul do? Presumption. He says, oh, oh, well, the people, blames the people, right? But he says, we've saved the best to sacrifice to the Lord. As if that makes them keeping spoil acceptable. As if God could be bribed. And what did God say? You know, you've rejected the word of the Lord. And so you've been rejected from being king. How many are in the churches today who are very much like Saul, who live in utter rebellion against God's law, 
but try to cover it with a thin veneer of religion. That's hypocrisy. That's fake Christianity. Now, I know some of you probably have very sensitive consciences. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, what if that's me? Like the disciples at, at the table during the Passover with Christ, you know, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Uh, if so, that's probably a good sign that it's not you. Uh, sin is not hypocrisy. Every one of us in this room that believes in Christ and is assured of heaven is still a sinner. Your sins are paid for, they are forgiven, but you're still a sinner. Everyone in this room who's a believer in Christ struggles with sin of some kind. That doesn't end until you're in heaven with the Lord. Struggling with sin is not hypocrisy. If that were the case, we would all be rightly called hypocrites. All of you are not hypocrites. Most of you, hopefully, none of you are hypocrites. I don't know. You and the Lord know that. Hypocrisy is the act of playing the part, of just going through the motions and then living however we feel like it and hating God and his law. It's what the Pharisees did. Christ wasn't, wasn't uh, mincing words. He wasn't, uh, wasn't exaggerating when he spoke about the way they were. He called them hypocrites, teachers of the law who rejected God's law and even rejected his Messiah. Look at the psalm here. Where it, What does the psalmist bring up? What does God bring up? Specific commandments that they had broken. They had broken the seventh, eighth, and ninth commandment and others, not in that order, in verses 18 to 21. He says they were pleased with thieves. He said they kept company with adulterers. In other words, they, they were more at home with wickedness than with God's people and his will. They gave their mouths, quote, free reign for evil, and even did such things as slandering their very own brothers. Wickedness, God calls it. Notice that hypocrites like scoffers often take God's silence for, pro- for approval. They take his silence, his delay in judgment, as indifference. Uh, he says, look at, look at verse 21, he says, These things you have done, and I have been what? Silent. In the past, so far, I've kept my mouth shut. I haven't come to call you to account. He says, yet you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Think about this. That's what we do. That's everyone, you know, they say that you know, in, the, in the beginning, God made man in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. You know, we, we make God into our image, or we, we somehow presume that God, you know, this is, this is how it goes. I commit fill-in-the-blank sin. You know, and I think that that one's not so bad. You know, that, who could possibly not like that or be offended by that? And we think that because it doesn't bother me, that it doesn't bother God. And if it doesn't offend me, certainly God must not be offended because God is like me. And God tells them, no, you, you thought that I was like you because I was silent. But he's not going to keep silence. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you, we, sometimes people wrongly presume that God is like them, that he thinks the way they do about their sins. After all, they sin and sin and sin and sin, and judgment hasn't come yet. The lightning bolt hasn't struck yet, but it will. Notice how our wrong thoughts about God lead to the sins of both formalism and hypocrisy. False worship and false living start with false theology. Wrong thoughts about God lead to wrong worship and wrong Living. Now, what does Peter say about mistaking God's patience for apathy? He says, The Lord, first, Second Peter 3 9 to 10, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is what? Is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, 
and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God's not slow in judgment. He's patient because he doesn't want people to perish in their sins. The Lord's patience is salvation. We should count his patience as salvation for some. But the day of the Lord and his judgment will most certainly eventually come. The the third thing, and thankfully the the most gracious thing in our, our passage, is the call to repentance. He's called to judgment. Now he calls to repentance, verses 22 to 23. Just as the Lord called the formalist in the first section to repentance, he also calls the hypocrite to do likewise. In verses 22 to 23, our last two verses, he says, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Same thing he told the formalist or the ritualist, isn't it? The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What a wonderful note of grace and mercy God puts at the end of this psalm that deals with such a terrible an awe-striking subject of judgment. All this talk of judgment, but at the end, what does God say? If he just wanted to judge them, he would have just done it. God gives us a startling note of grace. It's a breath of fresh air to those who are sinking under the weight of their sin and idolatry. The Lord, what does he say in his word? The Lord takes no no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes pleasure in sinners repenting unto life. That's what he takes pleasure in. What does, what does Ezekiel say in Ezekiel 33? He says it more than once in Ezekiel, but Ezekiel 33, 10 to 11, he says, And you, son of man, the prophet, say to the house of Israel, again, to the house of Israel, not those on the outside, thus, you have, thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away, we rot away because of them. How then can we live? In other words, they finally saw their sins for what they were. And the weight was bearing down on them. And they said, what are we supposed to do? It's like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone. What are we supposed to do? And it says this, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Again, if God just wanted to judge them, he could have just done it. But he doesn't, he doesn't just do that. He sends them prophets again and again. He sends his word and tells them, turn back, turn back from your evil ways for why will you die? What a mercy it is for God. It may feel like a harsh mercy. It may feel very severe. But what a mercy it is for God to reveal our sins to us. What a mercy it is from the Lord that he, he warns us to turn from the wrath to come. It may not feel like a mercy at the time, but it really is. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If he did again, why would he bother warning anyone? Why send his prophets? Half, half the Old Testament you could just remove. All the books of the prophets you could just not have. But again and again, look, look at the prophets in the Old Testament. All of them, the, the major prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and, and Daniel, and all the ones, the little still, the minor prophets we call them, the short books after that. Look how many God sends to his people again and again and again and again and again, calling them to do what? Repent. Repent and turn back to him in faith. He sends forth his messengers as an act of mercy to turn people to to the gospel of Christ, really, all the way through the Bible. He he warns us to turn from our sins and turn to Christ. If, If God 
took pleasure in the death of the wicked, why would he send ministers in our day? Why would he send prophets in the Old Testament? He, why would he send his only begotten son to live and die and rise again in the place of sinners if he took pleasure in the death of the wicked? It doesn't mean he won't judge, but he does call us to repentance. He does offer grace and salvation in Christ. What a wonderful God that we serve. To the hypocrite who turns from his wicked ways and trusts in Christ, he promises to show them what at the end of the verse? To show them the salvation of God. You might be a hypocrite now, doesn't matter. You turn to God, turn to him by faith in Christ, and he will show you his salvation. Who wouldn't want to offer a thanksgiving as a sacrifice to such a God as that that we serve? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you uh, are, are greater than we imagine, that on our best days, our best thoughts of you, as scripturally as we can try to think, that we can't even begin to comprehend your greatness, your holiness, your power, your justice, your goodness, your truth, your, the fact that you are the judge of all the earth, and that judgment begins with the household of God. We thank you that you sent your prophets again and again in the Old Testament, you sent your apostles and prophets in the New Testament again and again to turn people from sin and wrath and turn them to faith in Christ and salvation in his name. We thank you for sending the gospel to us, to each one in this room and, and others that we know of, that, that only by your grace and mercy have, they, have we heard the message of truth, the message of the gospel of your Son. And only by the grace of Christ and the working of your Holy Spirit do you make us alive and grant us faith and repentance that we might have life in his name through Jesus, and we pray that you would uh, help us not to go through motions, grant that none here may be hypocrites, grant that we might uh, all have sincere faith in Jesus Christ and him only for our salvation, and that you might work in us, work in our hearts by your spirit, fill our hearts with gratitude, uh, take our heart of stone and, and remove it and put a heart of flesh in its place, and fill our hearts with, with gratitude and love for you because of your love for us and what you've done for our salvation in Christ. We pray that you would help us to offer up today and and at all times a sacrifice of praise that glorifies you and is pleasing in your sight. And we pray that you would also help us because of that gratitude for Christ. Give us grace to order our life, order the way that we live in such a way also that pleases and glorifies you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.